0: Listen up, this is Brother G2. The greatest weakness of any oppressor is that they always underestimate the oppressed. So I'm encouraging everybody, we need you to invest in the On The Ground podcast. You can reach us at j4j underscore USA on Twitter, and you can reach us at our website, www.j4jalliance.com. We need you all to get with us every Monday night as we celebrate being on the ground. Abarigani Hotel. As-salamu alaykum, hola, peace, and what up, though? This is your man, Brother G2, the host of the On The Ground podcast. This is the podcast where we actually take a deep dive into the artistic science of community organizing. We believe in making sure that you all know that there are people struggling for freedom, there are people struggling for liberation, struggling to improve our communities all over the world. And we don't want to buy into the narrative that is hopeless. We don't want to buy into the narrative, you know, that them people ain't going to let us do nothing. We want you to hear from people who are making a difference every day in this world. We are not organizing from an ivory tower. We put our hands in the mud and the dirt and we build things with our people. And those are the folks we want you to be in contact with and to hear their stories. Today, we don't just want to talk about the issues, but we want to talk about some solutions. So we have a practical solution to the deep inequity in public education in the United States. You know, we're very clear that America does everything but equity. They punish the communities that they've never realized the mandate of Brown be bored with. We get everything from zero tolerance policies to punitive test driven education policies to alternative schools to storefront charter schools, charter schools in the basement of churches, online charter schools, everything they can come up with, except for realizing the mandate of Brown v. Board and pushing and committing to equity in public education. And our solution, or let me say a major part of that solution, is called sustainable community schools. You heard it here. There is a evidence driven model of school improvement that, can heal our communities, that can build infrastructure for quality education for black and brown, low-income and working families across the United States that, unfortunately, we have to organize to push our systems to do. And I have two experts with us today to share wisdom about sustainable community schools. First, I've got my brother from another mother. I've known this brother since he was a young man as a student on the campus of the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Now, he walks a little slower, but he's still strong with it. Uh, My brother, John Projanski, who is the resource coordinator at Drake Elementary School in Chicago. What's up, John? What's going on, brother G2? You You know, my granddaddy said, pretty fair for a square. I'm making it, you know what I'm saying? So look, all right. and with John, I have a brother who We can call the guru of sustainable community schools. He's like the Pied Piper. He's going all over the country, you know, laying his hand on people and helping to create sustainable community schools. This is my guy, man. Mm -hmm. Kyle Surrett. And he is the senior policy analyst for the National Education Association. What's happening, Kyle? How you doing, brother? Doing well. Great to be on with you. I want to welcome both of you brothers to the On The Ground podcast. And first thing I want to do is our member spotlight. And our member spotlight, I want to go to the Southwest a little bit, and I want to lift up uh, one of our newer member organizations, Save Our Schools Houston. This is a coalition of community organizations, a multiracial coalition that is committed to equity and education in the city of Houston, Texas, America's fourth largest city. If you all don't know what's happening in Texas, they are under the threat of a state takeover. And the first meeting I went to with Save Our Schools, they said they were doing a town hall meeting on a Saturday morning at a high school. So we go to the school and I was shocked to see 250 people packed in an auditorium. What's happening in Houston is they are under the threat of a state takeover. You've heard on previous shows where we've talked about the real objective of state takeovers. If you look at the Eli Broad Institute, Eli Broad being the billionaire who's developed the uh, Institute for uh, Leadership Development for Privatizers. So people like Michelle Reed, Barbara Burr Bennett, who's in jail right now, former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, they all got trained at the Eli Broad Institute. In the Eli Broad Institute, it states that a necessary ingredient for school reform, I'm going to put that in quotation marks, that means privatization, is the elimination of elected school boards. So what they do, is they ignore inequity and they continue to starve black and brown schools until they say those schools are failing. Because they have the resources and the media machine, they just message that our schools are failing, that someone has to do something for our children. In other words, they invent a crisis, they invent a disaster, and then they implement their reforms, which are the takeover of our right to vote, the closing of our schools, expanding charter schools that tend to assist in diluting our population, and then gentrification, or what we call the purge of Black people from American cities. So Save Our Schools Houston is waging a valiant fight against the state takeover of the Houston School District. And so they just stopped the closing of four schools in Houston, which was a powerful win for them, and they are continuing that fight. So I just want to give a shout out to my sister, Karina, to my sister, Candace Weber. And the good people will save our schools, Houston, and give you a salute from the on-the-ground family. Now, I want to turn over to my brothers. And my first question is to ask you all to introduce yourselves and, you know, why you do the work you do. So I'm going to start with you, Kyle.
1: I'm Kyle Serret, and I work for the National Education Association. And most of my job is to help spread the community school strategy across the country, do what I can to make it so we can get to that goal of 25,000 community schools by 2025. And I believe, and many others believe, that You don't just throw out schools. You can take a school that hasn't achieved its vision and work from the ground up to do it. And we're not just talking about theory. It's been done. Uh, It's been done in districts over and over all across the country. And we should organize for those things. And if we don't do it, someone else is going to do what they're trying to do in Houston.
0: How many cities
1: are you working with now, my brother? Working in 55 different cities in 25 states.
0: Say that one more time, brother. I, if you're all watching the show Modern Family, you know, when somebody says something that trips you out, they look into the camera.
1: I just had a Modern Family moment. <laughs> Say that one more time, brother. Yes, more <laughs> than I can have fingers and toes. 55 different cities and 25 states.
0: Thank you so much, and that's great work, brother. We're going to talk about that some more. Brother
2: John, introduce yourself. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Jonathan Prajansky. I am blessed to be the uh, Sustainable Community Schools Resource Coordinator at Mighty Mighty Drake Elementary in Chicago. And the reason why I do the work that I, I'm doing, or that we do, honestly, I'm, you know, coming from a background working in youth development for many years, and also, you know, doing programming in the school. Uh, this was a great opportunity for me to be able to land, you know, some of my experience towards setting up some of our new sustainable community schools in Chicago. You know, Drake in particular is a really great opportunity. We have a strong bond with the administration. You know, really look forward to how do we bring, you know, all the necessary resources that are needed into the school, not just for the students, but also for parents and staff and community members around, so people see the school as a valuable resource in their neighborhood.
0: See, see. Just like John, I jumped into this work doing youth development work. I was doing leadership programs in several schools, and I remember one of the first schools I worked in on the south side of Chicago was called Albert Einstein. It was on 3975 South Cottage Road in the famous mm-hmm. community. Now, there are condominiums where that school used to sit, but I remember a school where there was one, to show you how long ago this was, one IBM 486 computer in every classroom. Windows so dirty that the school was dark. And it was like a two and a half year campaign to get clean windows in the school. I'm going to tell a quick story. We were in a, uh, myself and two of my partners in crime, we were doing a program called the Omoja Leadership Institute with a group of students. These were like fourth grade youth. Mm-hmm. And... We're in there trying to talk about Marcus Garvey and the red, black, and green flag. and You know, in every class, you usually have a child that's an old soul, right? And we had a little mm-hmm. brother in our class named Frank. And Frank was a little boy that was, he was real little, but he had a voice like this. And the real little kids, <laughs> we sit sitting there, we're trying to talk. We ask people what they think, and all of a sudden, the brother just, and this is like the middle of May, and it was like 90 degrees. And the school's just basting hot. And the little brother is fanning his face. And to show you how long ago this was, he starts singing R. Kelly's song. He starts saying, temperatures rising. (laughs) And that's when I began to really, it began to hit me. And this is like 1995, just to make it plain. It began to hit me that what's happening in our schools is an issue of justice. It's an issue of inequity, right? That these kids in the same city Are going through an experience that maybe 10 minutes down the street in Hyde Park, where, you know, you had a high percentage of white children going to school, they had a completely different experience. But because Mm -hmm. of where these children lived in the Ida B. Wells Housing Project, it was okay to subject them to this. So when people Mm -hmm. talk about we have failing schools, we push back because we say, well, no, if one child has a world language and the other child does not, If one child has a science lab and another child does not, if one child has culturally relevant curriculum and the other child does not, if one child is counseled when they get in trouble and the other child is suspended or arrested, you don't have failing schools. You've been failed because the society Mm -hmm. that you pay taxes into refuses to provide you an equitable return on your tax dollar, which is Mm -hmm. an equitable return means I should have the right to go to a world class school within safe walking distance of my home. And so that's why we fight against things like school closings and school privatization, because we know that it's all about moving black people and brown people out of particular urban spaces. That's what it's all about. Yep. We say that we have a solution called sustainable community schools. So, drum roll, Brother Sorette. I'm turning the floor over to you, brother, to break down for the on-the-ground family. What is a sustainable community school?
1: Sustainable community schools, if you want to boil it all the way down, it's schools where stakeholders, and let's just define that as families and students and community and staff who are at the school, it's where they do their grassroots problem-solving to achieve the vision that they want their school to be. And there's a great study that came out last year from Learning Policy Institute, which analyzed 45 different studies of community schools. And they found that they were able to produce these dramatic effects of, if you could picture generation after generation of schools that have been sabotaged, like g 2 says, that broke that cycle of one generation after the next going to a school that didn't achieve their vision where they were able to now achieve their vision so these schools have a few things in them number one they have a community school coordinator or a resource coordinator and this person leads the process of deep visioning to figure out what is it that they want their school to be what do they love about their school but then what's the next question what do we want our school to be And then the second thing that they do is they do this problem solving together. They figure out, how do we achieve the school that we want to have? And then at times, they bring in these partnerships to help achieve what they want to achieve. So sometimes the solutions they have, they don't need a partnership. And sometimes the solutions they need, they do need a partnership. But the one thing that I think everyone should know is that these schools don't just focus in on what uh, a lot of folks think of as wraparound supports, like bringing in eyeglasses and dental care. The really transformative sustainable community schools focus in on curriculum, so that curriculum is interesting to the students, and that the curriculum looks like the students and their neighborhood. It emphasizes on high-quality teaching. So that the teachers in the school and the educators in the school are up to date on the best practices of teaching. And of course, it includes wraparound support so that if you're hungry or you've experienced trauma, that you get the support you need. Also, restorative practices. These studies that I talked about earlier, the 145 studies, they reveal that you can't achieve a vision that you want in a school without having an environment where you have true relationships. There's a saying in this uh, in this work that you can't repair a relationship that doesn't exist. So what restorative practices does is develop uh, relationships between the different stakeholders inside of schools and outside of schools so that they can have a, a great community to work in.
0: So restorative practices... As opposed to what? For folks who don't know what restorative practices are. Restorative practices as opposed to what?
1: Oh, harsh, no-nonsense, discipline practices where it feels like you're in a prison. All the stuff that has um, been proven to not to work and no one wants to go to a school where you, you don't feel uh, respected as an individual. So restorative practices is a proven strategy where you don't treat students like they're the jail uh, mates. You treat them respectfully and, and you create a relationship between educators and students and family members and each other and the community. It's just proven over and over and over that you just can't achieve the vision that you want to achieve in a school without having those relationships in place. And then two more pillars because there are be the six pillars of community school. And the next pillar is deep parent and family and community engagement. The community schools dig deep with their families and they want to know what they want their schools to be and how their schools can be helpful for them. You know, there's lots of uh, schools where they say, ah, you know, the parents, Families don't care. They don't come to any of the meetings. But if you meet with them and you understand what they want their school to be, maybe you're holding your meetings at the wrong time. Maybe you're not holding the right type of meetings on the right type of topics. So, many schools figure that out. And then the final pillar, which is shared leadership. You know, I have a lot of respect for principals, but there's some number of principals inside of schools which feel like they have to be Superman and Superwoman and do it all. And control all the power inside of schools. And the best research shows is that the best principals are able to share their leadership and distribute power among the stakeholders and staff so that they can work together to achieve their vision. So in the end, community schools are grassroots schools that try to achieve their vision together over time. And this is not something you do like one day and you achieve your vision. This is something that takes time, but it is sustainable, and that's why we call it sustainable community schools.
0: Thank you, Cal. Appreciate that. And so for our listeners, it's important to know, like you said, the Learning Policy Institute has identified that this is an evidence based strategy for sustainable long term school improvement. Not privatization scheme where they pick the kids they want, kick out the ones they don't, so at the end of the year, they look more attractive in order to get more schools. That you can see over a sustained period of time that in sustainable community schools, usually the first thing that happens is the attendance goes up because young people now enjoy being in school because you've built your vision for the school with them. You haven't heaped it upon them, right? With parents and community. And then we begin to see things like, young people feeling more at home, young people addressing some of their social issues with counselors and things of that. And then you see the academic improvement. So if this works, the question that I think our on-the-ground family has asked themselves is, why isn't this spreading all over the country? Let's repeat those six (laughs) pillars that Kyle laid out for. A curriculum that's engaging, relevant, and challenging. Support for high-quality teaching, not standardized testing. So what does that mean? That may mean things like smaller class sizes or relevant professional development, mentoring between veteran teachers and younger teachers. It can mean a a number of things. Appropriate wraparound supports for every child. In other words, you have the things in place that help meet the needs of the child and remove the obstacles to that child being successful. A student centered school climate. So our children should not go to schools where they are made to feel as if they are the problem. Right. And then meaningful parent and community engagement or what we sometimes call transformative parent and community engagement. So parents shouldn't be treated as if they stole something when they come to the school. They should be welcomed and the school should have organized, structured activities to maximize the community wisdom or the community knowledge that people in the community bring into the school. And then, as my brother said, finally, what we call inclusive school leadership. So if you're a principal and you don't believe that Ms. Jones, who has a high school diploma, and that's it, has anything meaningful to offer, then you can't lead a sustainable community school. If you don't think that the seventh and eighth graders in your school or the sixth graders in your school should have some type of say or some way for their voice to be heard, then you can't be the leader of a sustainable community school. So thank you, Kyle, for breaking it down. Now, in a minute, I just want our our listeners to know, we're going to get into how you actually win sustainable community schools. But John, you heard the six pillars. Can you share with our on-the-ground family what has been the impact of the sustainable community school model on Drake? But let me paint this picture first, everybody, right? They've been closing schools in Chicago since 2003, 2004, right? The first initiative was called Renaissance 2010 under former mayor, Daley, said they were gonna uh, close 100 underperforming schools, which I hear this language, in order to create 60 new schools. Right? And these new schools we're either going to be charter schools, contract schools, or CPS performance schools. And there are these things called contract schools that I don't want people to miss on our radar because we often are very critical of the charter school industry, but there are contract schools that have also had a devastating effect on our communities. And I'll, I'll name some of the, the main players so that you all can, whatever city you in, you may have heard of them. In Chicago, the biggest contract school company, which is called the Academy of Urban School Leadership. And one of the biggest ones around the country is called Edison Schools. Edison Schools were once in Philadelphia. They were in Baltimore. I don't know where else. But these are public schools that have union teachers, but they also sign five-year contracts with schools. And they, they don't have to have the same discipline policies or admission policies. So they can admit who they want and kick out who they don't. So, Drake Elementary used to be called Daniel Hill Williams Elementary School. It was one of the schools closed during Renaissance 2010. This school served a particular population in the Dearborn Housing Projects in Chicago, one of the few, if not the only multi-unit public housing units in the city of Chicago left. And it was closed under Renaissance 2010, despite a fierce fight back from students and parents. And then they moved a school called Drake inside of the Williams building. And so now the Williams School is now Drake Elementary School. So that is where we find ourselves today. And John is the resource coordinator at Drake. So my brother, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. And if you can explain just what has been the impact of the Sustainable Community School Initiative at Drake.
2: Like the brother Kyle said, uh, I really like the word transformative because since coming in, you know, we've been able to see a lot of the programs different things we've been able to bring into the school have and you know have a serious impact on you know all the different stakeholders involved for example when we started off we brought in uh, about 14 different programs for the young people ranging from you know just those for after and before school to those addressing social emotional need you know definitely one of our you know biggest pieces has been centered around restorative justice and restorative practice And so, you know, Brother A.J. McDowell, he's our restorative justice coordinator. We've kicked off circles with youth, circles with staff and, you know, even with parents. And it's allowed us to get a, you know, not just get a better sense of what's going on in the school, but for people to really have open dialogue about, you know, what are some of the things that are going on that need to be changed and what we can do to change them. I'd also be remiss if I didn't say, you know, one of the most important things we did in the beginning that people really valued was we started off with a community needs assessment. So we assess, you know, a great amount of students, parents, staff, you know, and teachers at the school, as well as just community members that live in the Dearborns around the school before we implemented anything. And we had to do that with a quick turnaround because the timetable we were working with. But we got that done. And to that end, we've also, you know, we have a leadership team that's made up of, you know, many of the community stakeholders, Mighty Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, Luginia Burns Hope Center, school administration, parents, several other community partners, uh, UI Health, and several students. You know, and we use that space to talk about how are things going that we're implementing, what's coming up, what are some other opportunities uh, that we can take on, and what are some things that, you know, really need to be addressed that we either haven't been able to address thus far or new challenges uh, that come up. A couple other things, uh, there's a health clinic um, that we are fortunate enough to partner with. It's one of the only ones in the city that services both students in the school and the community, named after Dr. Cynthia Boyd, who was the powerhouse who made that, really fought for it and unfortunately passed away before the health clinic opened. Also, we were able to help supplement make sure there was, you know, a clinician in there who could meet with students, you know, because having just one counselor at the school is just not enough, you know, to meet the need. And staff are actually able to go see the clinician as well if they need to. But it's really, you know, been helpful. I think they've only been in place like three weeks and it's seen close to 50 students. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, speak to just the piece in terms of our parents Like many of the schools throughout the city, um, you know, parent engagement, parent involvement, especially, you know, as the pillar says, you know, true parent involvement can often be difficult. And so um, we brought some things into the school, including a parent mentoring program, helping some parents to come in and be more a part of what's going on in the school, but actually be a part of what's going on in the classroom. And then we have parents who have assisted with before, during, after school, programs, but also those who have helped shape some programs that we started implementing on the weekend that are strictly for adults. So just giving, you know, mom, dad, auntie, whoever, a chance to go to a line dancing class or a quilting class. Again, these are all based off a needs assessment, things that they're seeing that they need. We have a career development course for anybody who's looking to, you know, enhance their skills and do career changing, you know, and so we're really trying to build on You know, what can we do to make the school more holistic for everybody, you know, and also, you know, find ways to connect with the community around the school in a way that maybe hasn't been done before or there hasn't been an opportunity to. So, for example, you know, most schools don't just have a resource coordinator who can go out and make connections, you know, with local institutions. Uh, We've had students from DePaul, you know, coming in, tutoring our students, there's a local church, you know, several churches actually over in the South Loop area around the school that we've gotten volunteers to come in and have actually come in and done a whole service day. So a lot of opportunities really been created. And then we, you know, we have had educators too. some of our teachers, you know, we partner with a lot because we're able to come into the classroom, help support what they're doing, you know, with some of our in-school programs and even just some of us who are present throughout the day mm-hmm. and building relationships with the students. But additionally, you know, teachers have gone to different trainings to learn more about culturally relevant and engaging curriculum and Mm -hmm. curriculum that is, you know, more challenging for their students. And, you know, we're able to be a resource for them to be able to obtain that if that's something that's needed. That's good work, brother. And I I do want to mention
0: also that one of the things that is a blessing at Drake Elementary School is that you Mm -hmm. have an administrator who believes in collaborative leadership. That's very
2: important, and I also I want to shout out Mississippi. Shout out to Miss Sydney Galladay. She is one heck of a a leader in that school, and also to you know speaking to the pillar. If I could jump in, G2, You know, she truly is. I've seen you know just from working with her over the past eight months or so. She you know truly is about transformative and engaging leadership. You know, with her, it's not just about what I say goes. You know, she really makes an effort to hear what everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. wants to bring to the table, including students, and and looks, you know, for solutions to come from
1: the ground up. Just to point out, that's not her just being nice. That's her Mm -hmm. doing what works, Mm -hmm. right? What research shows works. And Mm -hmm. that's what should be normal. But for us, we love it so much because it's uh, a little bit of a rarity.
0: And so I'm hoping that our listeners are catching kind of what Kyle and and in particular what John just laid out. You know, in addition to the culturally relevant curriculum, they didn't just jump into school and start doing programs. They engaged the community first to find out what the needs were. So they heard about career development. They heard folks that wanted to do things to, you know, whether it was quilting or things of that nature, uh, tutoring, a health clinic, and then those wraparound supports. Or opportunities for inspiration can do one of two things. They either help remove an obstacle to that child receiving an education or to that parent being able to take care of their families, to inspiring young people to invest more in school based off something that they enjoy doing. Because in over the last, really since the early 1990s, our schools were transformed into testing factories. So if you were a Mm -hmm. black school or a brown school, and your scores weren't at a certain level, what happens is that the school districts then say you're on academic probation. So they narrow your curriculum. So you may used to have art, now art is gone and you have a double session of reading block, a double session of math block. And then the joy that should be part of your educational experience leaves. When many of our young people, the light goes out because they're not being inspired. So the sustainable community schools model, I believe operates in the spirit of what folks talk about in Finland, one of the world's top education I think Finland is like number two right now. And folks in Finland say that the schools must be ready for the child, not the other way around. Right? So mm-hmm. whatever issues the children right, have right. To go with, you have to have the resources to address their needs. Again, this is very uh poker getting this, this is very informative, but you know that this podcast is rooted in the artistic science of community organizing. So, Kyle, I want to turn the mic over to you and just, if you could briefly share first, you know, just reiterate how many cities you work with and then share some of the strategies that people have have used to win sustainable community schools.
1: In the 25 states that we're working in, uh, that I'm working in, we've learned a lot because if we just had to track a little bit back Community schools have existed since the late 1800s. So we're talking a long time. And no one took the time to scale community schools across the country in the way that charter schools are being scaled by the privatizers. If you look at the top 100 districts, what I mean by student enrollment, the charter school industry are scaling in the biggest districts across the country. And no one did that for community schools. So we have community schools kind of scattered around the country. It wasn't until some of us came together to create the Lions to Reclaim Our Schools, which goes by Aros, and G2 and I were part of that, that we started to come up with a plan of how could we scale the number of sustainable community schools across the country? And six years ago, I think somewhere around there, uh, we started and we've learned a lot. And so the way that we scale now is, number one, is if we have an interested like union and interested community organization that really want to push for sustainable community schools and other things like that they want to see in their schools like lower class size and stuff like that now step number one is form a coalition and there were coalitions before the lines to reclaim our schools and you know, if one day uh, Lions Reclaim our schools goes away, there will be coalitions after. But the one thing that Aeros did was unify education coalitions around strategies to limit the privatization agenda and give ideas so we're not just saying no, but we're saying yes to things. So, step two, dig deep with the people inside those coalitions so you get what they want in their school. So, people won't show up just because you say show up. They want to show up because they want their dreams realized. So, in city after city all across the country, this formula has worked. And it's not one that's, I don't think, new to any of the listeners, but it does take doing. So, after your education coalition is formed, what do you do with it? The things that have worked are you have to go and pass policy for community schools and other things that you want. So picture your coalition working to elect a school board that believes that it is their job to grow the number of community schools in your district. And if your school board doesn't agree with that, then our job of our coalitions tend to be finding new school board members that do support that vision. And if your superintendent doesn't believe in community schools, the same thing goes for the superintendents. There's 14,000 school districts in our country and the superintendent can find another place. But where we are, we want superintendents that believe in community schools. And it's a core part of the strategy of the district for school improvement. So step one, Form that coalition. Step two, use the power of that coalition to win community schools. Because as you heard, part of the elements of community schools is having a community school coordinator inside of school. And that costs money. So some superintendents will say, well, every principal has a budget. You just principal decide to hire a coordinator if you want one. But a lot of times that puts principals in this bad situation of deciding and the people inside those schools in a bad situation of deciding, should I have one fewer third grade teacher and have a community school coordinator? And that's not right. We need to expand the pie. And districts can sometimes get rid of some of those high paid consultants and or we could realize that we could tax the rich or something like that to get greater investment in community schools. So there was one, like, we made this mistake in the early days is that we felt like after we won community schools, funding for community schools, that we won. And like, we could just watch the district go and do it. But it turns out that you need that coalition power before you win to get the win and after the win. Because the same districts that You know, a lot of our district folks, like sometimes we vilify them and sometimes they're great, right? And I think both are true. But, you know, people inside of schools are working hard every day to try to achieve stuff. It's just sometimes their instincts aren't always right. So, we found that the need for a coalition extends past winning the policy. So, using our coalition to, one, get a seat at the table in the implementation of community schools, and when the district or someone else tries to shortcut what it actually means to be a community school, maybe they just say, community schools are pillar number three, wraparound supports, and that's it. Even though the research will tell you that you need all the pillars and you need a community school coordinator and, and, and the such, that's when your coalition power needs to kick back in to uh, make sure that you're doing the right thing. Well, oftentimes, we see in cities across the country, a district will say, yeah, we're doing an and Asset Assessment, and then you ask them, uh, how'd it go? Well, they talk to 1% of the population. So, if you think about your school, your families, and your students, and your staff, You're going to get answer maybe A, B, and C as the high priorities for the folks that just show up. But if you dig deep, and the research that we've done shows that most really effective visioning and needs and asset assessments that these community schools do tend to take six months or a year. Because if you have 500 students inside of a school, that means that there's probably 1,000 family members caring for those. And how long does it take to talk to 1,000 family members? It's not a week or two. It often right. takes a bit of time. So step one, form your coalition. Step two, win policy. Sometimes you mm-hmm. can negotiate for it. And so there was a strike in Los Angeles recently mm-hmm. where UTLA and the AROS Coalition there fought really hard, and they they had the opportunity to settle their contract without community schools, but they decided not to go back until they won their community schools. So now they're getting ready to start 20 community schools this year, and they're going to get another 10 the next year. So we found there are various ways to win, but if I had to have a take-home message for anyone listening, form a powerful, authentic coalition, and don't stop using your power and have a big hand in implementation.
0: Thank you, Kyle. And we actually have an event. Coming up. And so I want to share this with our listeners on the 28th and 29th of May. Coming to Chicago uh, will be my brother Kyle Surrett. And also we will have elected officials and educators and students from Denver, Colorado, from Little Rock, Arkansas, and from Carter G. Woodson Elementary School, which is in Chicago. And all three groups are coming for a sustainable community school retreat for them to actually learn in a much deeper way, the things that we share with you today, because they are actually waging campaigns in their local cities to win sustainable community schools. Uh, We're excited about that, and we're going to do a lot more of that, myself and my brother Kyle, together. And so we'll be visiting John over at Drake Elementary School as a sustainable community school coordinator. So I want to thank both of you brothers for joining us tonight. I want to thank you for your time and for your expertise. You all have really offered some gems for our people today. And to win our 25,000 sustainable community schools, we're going to have to organize. We're going to have to speak power to power. I want to commend you all on the work, and I look forward to all of us working together to help make the leaders' world
1: better than we found it. And thank you, Titu, yeah. for all the work that you're doing all around the country, and, and this podcast is a great one. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank yes, you. sir. All
0: right, family. So we have had my brother Cal Suret and my brother John Pajanski. They were with us on the ground. Now, the theme of tonight's show is a little bit different. But the theme of tonight's show is Go Down Moses. You like, know, wait a minute, G2. I didn't join up to go to church. I got you. But what we're saying is, listen to this song tonight. This song was uh, developed by one of our greatest, greatest composers and songbirds, Sister Roberta Flack. And Roberta Flack, did more than love duets with Peebo Bryce, right? Roberta Flack had a long history of making socially conscious music. She's got one song also called Trying Times. Y'all got to check that out. It's dope. But she had another song called Go Down Moses. And in this song, I was listening to it and it tripped me out. You know, I, I have elders, man. You know that often, you know, if I'm driving with my elders across cities or whatever, they'll play a lot of jazz and things from that area. So I'll get educated on jazz music and just, you know, kind of the messages that was in it. And in this song, she starts singing, not Moses, let my people go. She was like, people let Moses go. She was like, you don't need Moses. Moses needs you. You don't need Moses. And that was so powerful to me because that speaks to sustainable community schools. We have the ability to envision and develop our own school in the public school system, right? Now, you have some people that be like, well, G2, man, you about those public schools, and, you know, I ain't with that. You know that? That's cool. That's cool. But what you have to understand is that if they take your tax dollars, don't you think you deserve a return on your investment? So you're just going to let them take your tax dollars, put millions of our children in public schools, and you're not going to have a word to say about it. No, nah, that's not going to work. So if our children are in public school, then we have a right to control how those schools operate, how they look. And so the song, Go Down Moses, speaks to that. And so before we get to the song, I want to close out with a quote from my late great ancestor, Ella Baker. She said, Oppressed people, whatever their level of formal education, have the ability to understand and interpret the world around them, to see the world for what it is, and move to transform. Man. So she understood clearly that we should not bank or buy into these artificial divisions that our oppressor gives us. My name is G2 Brown, PhD, master of this, master I don't mean nothing because none of that teaches us how to be free. Y'all got to read about this. Now, when she organized Freedom Summer and all these college students came from all over the country to volunteer in Mississippi, one of the first things she told them to do was study at the feet of the sharecroppers. Do y'all hear me? She said, study at the feet of the sharecroppers. So people like Bob Moses and folks like that that were deeply involved in SNCC and other organizations, don't come down here with your degrees thinking that you're about to teach them something. Look at a man or a woman who could be murdered for looking a white person in the eye but had the courage to straighten their back up and say, I demand the right to vote. Shut up. You ain't got nothing to say to them except for take out your notebook and understand. Mm. That's what the work that we have to do with sustainable community schools is about. Those divisions don't mean nothing. They don't mean nothing. What means something is when you look in the eye of that child, what do you see? Do you see a giant or do you see a nigger? When you look in the eye of that mother, that father in the community that's coming up there, despite everything they're going through, showing up every day, what do you see? And if you see what God sees, then we could do some work. If not, mm. then you're faking the fuck. All right? Now, thank you for joining us once again on the ground. And I give you Queen Roberta Flack, Go Down Mode.
1: My people, let Pharaoh go. You don't need him. You don't need his tricks. You don't need his trinkets. Let Pharaoh go. Pharaoh doesn't want you, but he needs you. My people, let Pharaoh go. Without you, there is no Pharaoh so all you have to do to let him go is let him go just wake up tomorrow morning and say bye